there is so much to worry about, isn't there? It is so good that you're here today, and I mean that. I'm so glad that you're here, uh, because worry, worry is awful, isn't it? Uh, we're going to hear something good today. In 2010, a team of researchers from Harvard University designed an experiment to try to get a sense for what's happening in our minds throughout the day. Uh, Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert developed an app uh, which was downloaded onto thousands of smartphones uh, by people ranging in age from 18 to 88. The researchers gathered with this app a quarter of a million data points. And what they did, essentially, is they developed this technology to try to get an understanding of what is happening in your mind during the waking hours of your day. Uh, at random times, here's how it worked. The phone would buzz, and participants in the study had to record three things. They had to write down what they were doing, what they were thinking about, and then how they were feeling. Uh, now, you'd assume that while they were doing something, they would be thinking about that thing, right? Not so. They found that almost 50% of the time, your mind is actually not focused on what you're doing, but it's wandering. Half of your waking life, your mind is not in the place where you are, but instead your imagination has taken it somewhere other than where you find yourself. They marketed a version of this for churches, but pastors made such an uproar they never actually sold it. I'm actually just testing to see if your mind is wandering. <laughs> Can you think of that for a moment? Half of the time your mind is not where you are. They found that that was true even when participants were engaged in work, when they were playing Candyland, when they were having conversations with their family, sitting around the table, out to eat at their favorite restaurant, the mind wanders. What happens during that time was even more stunning. They said basically there were two things which people reported thinking about, and then also that correlated with how they felt when they were not where they were. Either the mind is in the past thinking about some failure or difficulty back there, bringing it back into the present and causing you to feel anxiety and apprehension now as if you're reliving that hurt from back there. Or if it's not doing that, it's projected into the future, imagining some trouble down the road, thinking about all the ways that things are going to go wrong tomorrow and the day after that. In effect, 50% of your waking hours are spent on the fifth habit of the chronically unhappy, which is worrying. We spend half, roughly, of our waking hours with our minds moving either back there or far ahead, and in both cases, bringing into our experience of the present things that make us feel bad when we imagine them. And we worry about everything. I'm right about this, aren't I? You worry about your kids. You worry about their teachers. You worry about their education. You worry about which schools they're going to get into. You worry about the roads that they're taking right now. You worry about the decisions that they're making as adults, which you would not have made yourself. You worry about the significant relationships around you, how things are going with your spouse, how things are going with your own parents, 
or with your extended family. You worry about work. You worry about your manager and what's expected of you. You worry about the market. You worry about how the economy is going to unfold. You worry about politics. Yeah? There is a nonstop, 24-hour, seven days a week worry machine out there, and it's in your pocket. It gives you notifications when there's something new to worry about, right? I could go on and on for the rest of our time together about the things we worry about, but I don't need to because you know it. And here's the thing about worry. Uh, it correlates very plainly with unhappiness. The outcome from this Harvard study was this. They, they summed it up in one sentence. A human mind is a wandering mind, and a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And here's the thing about worry. Not only does it make you unhappy, it keeps you from moving forward, and therefore it keeps you from following Jesus. And that's the main thing I want you to see today. And here's the last thing. You don't need to worry. And I'm going to try to help you see that. And I'm not going to try to help you see that from my own imagination or my own best thoughts. But the fact about worry is that it's such a pervasive human experience that the Bible addresses it very directly. Jesus taught about it. His followers spoke about it. You can see in the poetry and the wisdom of God's people throughout the ages the acknowledgement of this human experience, which we all know, which is worry. And then God himself addresses it, showing us a path away from it. And that's what I want you to see this morning. Our main consideration together will be one brief passage from a letter that was written by a man named Paul. And he wrote a lot of the letters in the New Testament. And he was a guy who had plenty to worry about. And in the book that he wrote, or the letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi, uh, entitled Philippians, there is a passage in which he directly speaks about worry. And I want to show it to you, and then I want to consider it together. And I want to do that to see what God might do for us. Uh, just an aside, some of you might think it's impossible that I should worry less. Uh, there's nothing impossible for God. So let's see what Paul says. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 reads like this. We're just going to take this one verse and then another one together. Enough for it to stay in our minds. Here's what Paul writes in verse 6. Do not worry about anything. But in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In that one sentence, we have both the very concrete guidance about what not to do, do not worry, as well as some very positive formation about what we should do instead. We'll spend time on both sides of that, but before we do, would you try this? Would you imagine for a moment that you had half of your waking hours, the mental activity given back to you. Look at those first, the first phrase there. Do not worry about anything. Would you imagine what it would be like to have half of your waking hours back so that you're not dwelling on the stuff back there and bringing it into the present to hurt yourself now or, or worried about the things down the road? Can you imagine that? How good would that be? What would you do with all that time? I'll tell you what, you do very, very many good things, and it's what God wants. Let's stop for a minute and think about worry. 
very uh, narrow in on it. Let's zoom in and think about what's actually going on. Why is it good advice not to worry? Now, it might seem like the most obvious thing in the world to say, do not worry. But if you pause and say, well, why not? There are some very pragmatic reasons, some very sensible uh, reasons not to worry. I want to start there. Uh, very, very easy to say this. You ready? First reason not to worry is that worry is unpleasant. Does that seem like Captain Obvious? <laughs> worry is unpleasant, right? I mean, when you're in the midst of worrying, think about this. It's unpleasant because worry is an expansive and a greedy affect. What I mean is when it gets into your heart and your mind, it expands. And it crowds out everything else which you would rather have in your mind and in your heart. Joy is such a brilliant experience, right? You've, you've experienced joy and pleasure. The moment worry comes in, it expands and it pushes joy and pleasure out so there's no more room for them. It gobbles them up. It's greedy. It wants all of the space in your mind and heart. And when it gets it, you can't hope. You can't envision anything good in the future. The present is robbed of all pleasure and there you dwell with this miserable feeling of worry. And my goodness, we feel that almost half the time according to the research. And if you, if you imagine what it is, it actually becomes even more clear why it's so miserable. Uh, your imagination, which God gave you so that you could think about the future and strategize about how to make things better, so that you could use your imagination to envision how to bring change about in the world which needs it. When you are worrying, your imagination becomes your enemy. You know that, right? It, it plays a little scenario for you, a, a, a short film about how miserable things are going to be. And then it turns against you. And this faculty of goodness which God gave you becomes your enemy. That's why worry is unpleasant. That's one of the reasons it makes so much sense to say do not worry because it's unpleasant. Listen, it's not only unpleasant. Here's a second reason. And this is also supported by research. Worry is unhealthy. It's not hard to find uh, plenty of, of medical research that supports this very simple premise that worrying is as bad for your physiology as a really bad diet is. Uh, you, you'll know this probably. Worry tends to correlate with depression. And if you've experienced depression yourself, you know how miserable it is. It drains all the life out of you. You don't want to get out of bed. You feel physically awful. Worry does that. It doesn't just do that. Uh, research indicates that it is linked also with heart disease, with premature aging, with shrinking brain mass. Your brain gets smaller when you worry for a long time. With your IQ lowering and the development and onset of dementia and Alzheimer's. Worry is as bad for you as at the end of the evening, right before bed, scarfing down a dozen hot wings in a bag of salt and vinegar potato chips, which I have done before. <laughs> I heard my wife just tell the person next to her, he's done that many times. <laughs> uh, okay, listen, this is the third thing I'll tell you, and this also comes from the research. It's not just unpleasant and unhealthy. Worry is, strictly speaking, unnecessary. Uh, and, and this is not you know, a moralistic person telling you, don't do it, it's not necessary. They, they did a study, uh, another group, did a study to find out what people worry about and how often the things they worry about actually come true. So, so imagine this now. Maybe you could think for a moment 
If, if, you, if a researcher came to you and asked you, write down all the things you worried about, you're writing them down. They did this with thousands of people, and then they tracked over the course of many months how many of those things which people were tortured worrying about actually came to pass. And the percentage, and percentages are fun, the percentages of what subjects reported actually coming to pass, 85% of what subjects worried about never happened. Wow. I heard somebody say that. I know a lot of you are feeling that. Wow. Only 15%. Now someone here who's a really good warrior, yes, but what about that 15%? Okay. <laughs> they, did, they, did, they did research on that 15%. <laughs> okay. 79%. It's less than 85, but not by much. 79% of what subjects actually experienced turned out to not be nearly as bad as they had anticipated. That is, they worried about things which, when they did happen, weren't nearly as bad as they thought. And many of them reported having learned something very good from that difficult thing. That it changed them for the better. And if you put these percentages together, it turns out that very simply, the outcome of 97% of what you worry about never happens. 97. 97% of worry is altogether, strictly speaking, completely unnecessary. Your imagination is hurting you for no reason. You are experiencing that unpleasant experience half of your life for no reason at all. You are becoming less healthy even though you don't need to and you don't get the pleasure of the hot rings and the chips. Now listen, 97 isn't 100, right? And there's another person in here saying, but what about the 3%? And I want to be serious now, listen. What about the 3%? What about the diagnosis, which you worry about, and you hope it doesn't come back with that dreadful word, cancer, and then on Friday morning at four, you hear cancer. What about that? What about the anxiety that you feel with your spouse, and you've got this worry that maybe they're being unfaithful, and then it comes true? What about then? And those things which are so hard and so heavy, you don't say, oh yeah, I learned something from it. No, what about then? That's a real question. And the thing about this guidance from Paul, do not worry about anything, is it not only applies to the 97%, because it's pragmatic and it's obvious and everyone would agree, it also has something to say to the 3%. When it does go the bad way, and it will sometimes. And these three reasons not to worry while they're good and pragmatic, listen now, Paul's guidance, the man who wrote these words to those people in Philippi, it had a different foundation than simple pragmatism. The man knew Jesus Christ and his whole life had changed. And now what he wrote was driven by his theological convictions. That means it was what he believed about God that led him to put pen to paper and tell the people in Philippi, don't worry. Because he knew not only that it's unpleasant and it's unhealthy and it's unnecessary, but he knew a third thing or fourth thing. I can count, not on the fly. <laughs> he knew a fourth thing which I know. And this is why I am on about this with you this morning. Because, listen, you can go to the self-help section in Barnes & Noble and get a book about why you shouldn't worry that's just as good or better than what I can say. But this next part might not be in there. And this is why Paul really said don't worry. It's this fourth reason. Worry hinders discipleship. And some of you know exactly what I mean when I say discipleship. If you don't know what that word means, let me tell you like this. Okay, I want you to picture 
a woman whose life is a wreck. And then, against all odds, Jesus himself comes into her life. He's there and present with her in a way that's just as real as I'm with you now. And he's full of grace and mercy for her. He renews her and gives her a new life. He takes away the past and all of that misery. And he says, new life is yours. Discipleship is the moment when she says, well, I want to give my heart to you. And now I want to walk with you every day. I want to follow you. I want my whole life to be about you, Jesus. That's what discipleship is. And what Paul knows and what I know is that when you start to worry, it gets really hard to walk with Jesus because walking with Jesus is full of risk. Not the bad kind of risk, but the good kind. The kind that every adventure, the kind that every meaningful movement in life is filled with. Risk. Discipleship is when a man surrenders control of his life and he says, God, you are the one who is in charge. I give my life to you. I want to walk with you now. That's what discipleship is. And Paul knows that every man who wants to go along with Jesus will have to get over one thing if he's going to walk on that narrow road, which is a difficult road, which Jesus leads, leads on. And that is worry. Do you know that when Jesus calls you to follow him, he calls you to things which will make you anxious? Do you know that? Does somebody? I'll give you very concrete examples. We talked about one two weeks ago. Remember this? Jesus said if someone in the church does something against you, go talk to that person directly. Doesn't that make you feel worried? How are they going to respond? How are they going to take it? How will they look at me if I say a challenging word? Jesus says, I understand that you're worried about that. Don't worry. Do it. And it's good for you when you do. Jesus says a lot of things like that. He says to his followers, be generous radically with what you have. Look in the world around you. You're going to find a lot of people who don't have enough. If you have enough, share what you have. Give away your possessions and your money and then come and follow me. And Jesus knows and Paul knows and I know that there are few things that we worry about as much as money. Yeah? We worry about it all the time. But you cannot follow Jesus in his call to radical generosity as long as you are consistently worried. But he says, don't worry, follow me and be generous. Oh, he says this in so many beautiful ways, which we need to hear. Here's one. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Cross social boundary lines and go and be with the outsider. Cross racial boundary lines and go and be with the stranger. Cross even religious boundary lines and go and be with the other and with that other person, be vulnerable and open yourself to them and love them. How scary is that? How much worry does that induce? Yes, it, it induces plenty of worry. And what Jesus says is go across the line. Do not worry. And if you worry, you'll never follow him. And listen now, if you never follow him, it will be worse than unpleasant. And it will be worse than unhealthy. And it will be worse than you using your life on something that is unnecessary. You will never have true life until you get on the path of discipleship and start following Jesus. And that's why these habits are so utterly critical to address and overcome because your true life was, is for you, is in following Jesus. There's nothing better than following him for you. And as long as you worry, you'll never get on that path with him. That's why Paul says, do not worry about anything. Look at those words again. And now I want you to come back to your own self for a moment. Do not worry about anything. What are you wasting yourself, what are you wasting your life on when it comes to worry? Now let your imagination go there for a moment. 
Maybe it is one of the 97% things, uh, which even though you've made a career uh, over worrying about it, it's never come to be. Maybe it's that. Uh, or maybe it is one of the 3% things, and right now you're in the midst of facing one of those. Okay, whatever it is, listen now to what Paul says. He says, do not worry, and then he goes on to tell you what to do instead. Okay, in the remainder of verse 6, let's look again at what I read and what he says there. After telling them not to worry about anything, he continues, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is completely and entirely concrete guidance for you, for every one of us, for us all together, for me. When you begin to worry, here's what Paul says, you immediately turn your imagination away from the thing that you're concerned about out there and turn your attention instead toward God. Prayer and supplication. That might sound like a holy and religious thing that's only for uh, professional people who uh, live in, in gilded buildings and wear fancy robes. It's not. Supplication is a fancy word that means to throw yourself down in reverence before a power that is greater than yourself and in an earnest and sincere and desperate way to plead with that other for the thing that you need. Prayer is not some holy language that's only for very religious people. It is quite simply telling God in your own words exactly what you are dealing with and making your requests known to him is very simply saying, God, here is what I'm asking you for. And I want you to know that every one of you is invited in all of the moments you find yourself engaged in worry to so stop worrying and talk to God about what you're going through. If we had to sum it up in the most concise way, Paul teaches us, do not worry about anything. Pray about everything. And let me show you what that looks like, okay? Maybe you're worried about money. God, I don't have enough. I'm scared about how I'm gonna uh, meet the expenses that I have that are coming down the road. Rent is more than I can afford. I don't know what to do. I need more. God, would you please help me find a way to have enough money? I need your help. I'm so nervous and anxious and, and testy around the people who are near me. I'm so stressed. Please help me. That's what it looks like. That is making your request known to God. Uh, maybe for you, it's not money. It's your children. God, my son is on the wrong path and he's so, uh, he's so stubborn that I can't do anything to stop him. And now that he's getting older, I see that e even if I could do something, it won't work. He's, he's an adult. Some of you are in this position with your children, aren't you? You have to watch them go down a path that is bad for them. And you're worried? You say, God, would you please care for my child? Would you please guide him? Would you protect him? Would you send someone who can influence him to move in a new way? Whatever it is that you worry about, you are invited by Paul's guidance here to very simply tell God about it, to make your requests known to him. If it's an addiction, God, I'm so stuck in this pattern and I don't have the power to get myself out of it. Would you somehow, if you're real, would you somehow break me free and give me power to get free from this? If it's a person that you care about who's uh, close to you, who's harming themselves or, or the people around them, you lift their name, say, God, would you help this person and give them the strength to get free from what they're going through. Whatever it is, in everything Paul is saying, make your requests known to God. Now, there is, there is in this passage, there is a moment where Paul tells us indirectly the foundation beneath his reason for telling us this. 
And it's in those two words right there, with thanksgiving. Those two words, they point to the reason why Paul can say without any worry himself that you are free to make your requests known to God. And it's for this reason, listen. And, and now I want to speak to those of you who, who are not only in the 97%, but in the 3%. Gratitude is the right attitude to have with God because God loves you. And because God is your heavenly father who knows exactly what you're going through and who cares about it more than you could ever imagine. And, who, and listen now, think about this with me, all right? Think about what Paul believes about God. Imagine this. Paul knows that God was the transcendent and omnipotent and almighty power who was at the beginning of all things, who brought the entire universe into being, the one upon whom everything that exists depends on for its being. Nothing would exist without this God. God holds the planets in his hands as if they were marbles. He knows the stars and all of their number. He counts the grains of sand and he knows everything that happens in all the world. And at the same time, there is never a moment when this God is too busy not to attend to your softest prayer. That the moment there is a care or a concern on your heart, it is known to God and his ears are always open to you. And believing and trusting that, Paul can tell you, if you're worried, go talk to God with thanksgiving. You should know that the gratitude that comes from understanding who God is is more magnificent and powerful than any trouble you could ever face. Think of it. The cry of the widow comes to the heart of God and breaks God's heart. When there's a lonely child who's not cared for appropriately, an orphan, God's heart bleeds over that and it breaks his heart. I'm not making this up. If you would read through the prophets, you'd see that the heart of God is tender and it's tender for the needs of his people. And every single one of you is known by God from top to bottom and every little thing you worry about, he knows about it. And what he's waiting for in every single moment is for you to simply come to him and tell him about what's on your heart and how hard it is. And that's why Paul can say with thanksgiving because when you think of that, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that there's nothing that you face there's nothing that we will face altogether that is not known by God and which God himself is not ready to listen to us about. I love the Lord because he heard my cry. That's the beginning of one of the Psalms. When I was sinking in the flood and the waves were crashing above me and I was going down to the bottom of the depths, my heart cried out to God and he reached out and he grabbed a hold of me and he pulled me out and put my feet on solid ground. He put a new song in my heart. That's one of the Psalms. You are the apple of God's eye. That is in one of the Psalms. He collects your tears as in a bottle. They are dear to him. He, his ear attends your softest prayer. These are all lines from the Psalms. All of these are the reason why you and I are utterly free to walk away from anxiety and worry. And every time we're assailed by our imagination's dreadful picture of the future, to simply tell God what we need and to know in that moment that he hears, that he cares, and that he loves us more than we could ever imagine. What about the 3%? Can I come back to that now? Before I do, I just want to make sure that the 97% of the stuff that you worry about that's never going to happen, or if it does, will never hurt you, you are, I'm urging you to talk to God about that and then let it go, okay? What about the other 3%? Now, this is a heavy word and a hard one, but I want to say it. 
It is true that sometimes the things that we ask for do not come. It is true that we can pour our hearts out before God, asking for him to make it go this way rather than that, and we find ourselves on this path that we never wanted to be on. And it is also true that that path can at times be so utterly overwhelming and difficult that we would never say, well, thank goodness it came this way. Never. Are you with me? There's moments when the news goes from bad to worse. What then? Here, listen. And this I, I can only say. In those moments when I cry out and I say, why, God? I can no more understand God than a lump of clay can understand the hands of the potter which are at work forming it. And that also is not my own image. I didn't make that up. It's one of the many ways that the Bible depicts our relationship to God. His ways are so much higher than ours that we are like clay in his hands. And so we can no more understand what he's up to than my two-year-old son can understand what I'm up to when as a good father, I'm doing things which he experiences as if I hate him when in fact I love him. Do you know what I mean? Anyone who's raised a child knows that. And in fact, let me tell you, when Jesus taught his followers to trust and not worry, what he told them was God is your heavenly father and you matter to him more than you can imagine. And so you don't need to worry about anything. And that does not mean that everything you always want will come. It means that even when the answer is not what you want, even then you're invited to trust him and speak to him like a child and a father. When my son Nathaniel, who's nine years old now, when he was two, he broke his femur. He, he fell down the steps and, and he had a stress fracture and he cried for hours. We thought he was okay. We finally brought him to the hospital. They did an x-ray. There was a fracture there in his femur. If you've had a child suffer, you know how hard it is, right? The doctor said to me, we have to set his femur and you have to hold him while we strap restraints on him. Now my son knows that I love him. And here he is, he's two. And I have to fold his arms over his chest and hold him steady as they wrap thick canvas bands over his arms so that he can't move. And as I do this, he looks at me and his eyes are filled with fear and they're filled with pain and worst of all, they're filled with confusion. And I can see in his eyes, he's asking, Dad, I thought you loved me. Why are you doing this to me? And I know that I'm doing this to him because it's for his own good. And I'm doing it to him because I love him and I want him to be well. But he cannot experience it like that. And here, when we find ourselves in that moment where we have to face that thing about which we worried, which is in that 3% sliver that happens, and it's no good. We are invited here by this word to trust God. To trust that he is our heavenly father. And he loves us with a, with a love that is beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. And I'll tell you why Paul believed that. Listen to this. He believed it because when he encountered the risen Jesus, he knew in a moment that Jesus was God himself who came into the world and fixed our mess and our problem by taking on the sin of the world on his own self and dying in our place. And Paul believed that Jesus did that for him and for all of us. And that means that God is the one who comes and suffers and walks the road of suffering for every one of us so that there will never be a road that we have to walk down that he himself doesn't know from the inside and that he hasn't conquered. And trusting and believing that, Paul could tell us, you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry because you're free 
every moment to tell God about it, every moment, and to know that he's listening and to trust that he cares and that he loves you. And like a benevolent and all-powerful father, he's ready to give you exactly what you need in every moment. Now, what's the promise that comes if we do this? And there is a promise. Okay, in verse 6, which we looked at, Paul tells us what we should not do. Don't worry. He tells us what we should do, pray about everything. And then in verse 7, he tells us the promise that we can cling to if we'll do this. And I want to end on this. Look look at verse 7. There Paul writes what will happen if we'll do this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is no promise here that you will get what you ask for. There is no one-to-one correlation between how you pray and whether you get the thing that you want. Not here. Here there is a promise which is deeper, I think. It's a promise which surpasses all understanding, which means if I try to figure it out and tell you exactly how to think about it, I've made a mistake. It's a mystery. And it is now, and it will remain a mystery, just as the clay will never understand the potter. We'll never understand our Father in heaven. Not now, at least. But what we can trust is this promise that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. And when you're worried, your heart and your mind is assailed by your imagination and a million other things that ruin it. But this word guard here is a military term which would have been familiar to the first hearers. Listen to this. Around ancient cities, there would have been built a wall to keep those places safe. And the only way in and out of the city was by way of the gate. And at every gate, there would stand the soldiers whose responsibility was to guard that way so that no foe or assailant who would be bad for the city could make his way in there and ruin the life in there. And here God's promise is that if you will tell him what you need, if you will make your requests known to him, if you will come to him with whatever it is that makes you worry, he will guard the gates of your heart and your mind so that they will no longer be under attack and so that you will have the peace that your heart and your mind were made for so that worry won't have the upper hand and you are free to follow Jesus. You are free to engage in those mental activities which are meaningful and productive so that your health improves and you can be more effective in the world around you as a witness to the goodness of God in Christ. And so that you experience the joy which God made you for. Uh, I want to give the last word actually to the poet. uh, The one who wrote Psalm 131. It's a song of quiet trust. And as I read this, I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward. uh, And they're going to sing a song of trust in a moment. But I want you to listen to this ancient song first. This is Psalm 131. If you will... Make your requests known to God. Listen to this. It's so beautiful. You will be able to say, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now that means I'm done trying to figure everything out. Verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my heart and my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child that is within me. I mean, picture that. 
a, a well-fed infant in its mother's arms at peace. That's your heart. And then this final charge, O Israel, the psalmist writes, and I can take that and say, O people of God, O Renaissance Church, every one of you is here, a visitor, a person who's been here every week. Listen now. Hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. Do not worry about anything. 